as we look to the Lord in prayer. And Father, this morning there's going to be someone here who's asking, what are you doing? I have a plan for life and it doesn't seem to be working out. I had dreams that are unfulfilled. I've got health issues that I didn't expect. My trajectory when it comes to my work, my occupation, my living, is in a whole different direction than how I was educated, how I planned. Family experiences are different than what I thought when it all began. I'm single and I thought I'd be married. I was married and now I'm single. What are you doing? And how do I reach you, God? We relate to Job. We hear what he's saying. He reflects the hearts of many. We want to speak to those hearts this morning. So, Father, warm these hearts. Engage these minds. And shape these wills. As again, now, Father, we've come here this morning to see Jesus and him only. We're praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. Some of the great movies in the course of the years have been courtroom movies. And one movie historian writes, movies that have courtroom scenes in them are among the most popular of moviegoers. Why, everyone knows the famous Jack Nicholson line from A Few Good Men, quote, you can't handle the truth, unquote. The classic judgment at Nuremberg is both engaging and a reminder of how world history affects us even today. What is interesting is that movies, unlike most TV shows about courtroom dramas, give us a single line or two that will stick out in the minds of the rest of us. And I nodded my head. A single line or two that will stick out in the minds of the rest of us. And I thought of Job in chapter 9 of verse 33. Where longing for that courtroom moment when he can argue his case before the God of the universe who is the judge, the sovereign judge, he says, but there's no arbiter between us. who might lay his hand on us both. Long for somebody to reconcile humanity with God, God with humanity. Where do I go in the midst of my pain to be able to find an answer to this question? There's his singular line that's memorable. 
What I want to do with you this morning is we're continuing to grapple with God in relationship to human suffering now. I want to draw out for you some connections that are found in these verses that help us to better understand what's taking place here. Because I want you to bear in mind that it is God, not Job, who is on trial. In the opening scene, in that cosmic courtroom setting, the evil one, in essence, was challenging the judge, the sovereign God himself. You can almost see him pointing his finger. Have you not put a hedge around him, speaking of Job? In his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But, and here's the evil one, challenging the sovereign one. Stretch out your hand. Touch all that he has. He'll curse you to your face. Now, what the evil one is assuming at this point is that Job has a commercial faith that he believes in God because God is blessing Job. But if God stops blessing Job, Job will stop believing God. That is an assumption here being made by the evil one. And so now what you see here is that the reality of the situation is not so much Job that's going through trials as it is that it is God who is on trial in the book of Job. And what Job will do in the midst of his human sufferings when he opens his lips to speak is that he will offer what I will call another reason for suffering, what I will call testimonial suffering, where when you and I suffer, we are given a reason to suffer and that we can offer greater testimony to the sovereign God of the universe and his grace. There are at least eight reasons in the Bible why people suffer. But in this book, we're dealing with the judicial imagery that's found here in the midst of Job's sufferings. Here we find that there is a God who's at the center of all of what's taking place here. So I want to draw two significant connections that are found in these verses. And the first is in 1 through 12, and it's that as you and I, as we explore now what I'll call the judicial aspects of human suffering. Remember, Job wants an arbiter. He wants a representative. He wants a, a mediator. He wants a lawyer. I want you to note, first of all, the connection between God and creation found here in these verses. He starts off in this ninth chapter, in this first verse, by answering Bildad, who is, uh, he, he's hit below the belt in chapter 8. He's even incriminated Job's sons. Don't go after your kids, moms and dads. They um, they get pretty tough at this point. You go after the kids. Well, now Job answers and says, "Truly, I know that it is so." And you're asking, but what is what is he saying? Truly, I know that it is so. 
Well, back in chapter 8, verse 20, you might remember that the chapter ended with these words, Behold, God will not reject a blameless man, nor take the hand of evildoers. Which was another way for Bildad to paraphrase what his, his senior counselor, Eliphaz, had previously stated in chapter 4, verse 17, can mortal man be in the right before God? Question. Can a man be pure before his maker? Now, both these counselors and Job believe in their maker. But what kind of maker is he? So truly, I know it's so. I get it. I get that this God requires justice. But, Here's the question of the hour in verse 2. How can a man be in the right before God? Now, the book of Job is rooted in the Genesis time period. And one day, God took Abram out into the land, and he said, look toward the heavens and number the stars if you're able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your offspring be, and you and I are told, and he, speaking of Abram, believed the Lord, and he, speaking of God, counted it to him, Abram, as righteousness. He wasn't made righteous. He was declared righteous. As Martin Luther would be nodding his head at this point, as he's attaching the 95 Theses to the Wittenberg door, how can a man be in the right before God? It's a great question that a sufferer's got to be able to start answering. But maybe Roy Gustafson helps us at this point. He was the one that told the story that there was a man in England who put his Rolls Royce on a boat, went across the continent to go on holiday. While he was driving around Europe, something happened to the motor on his car. He contacted Rolls-Royce people back in England and asked, I'm having trouble with my car. What do you suggest I do? And well, Rolls-Royce flew people out and the mechanic out as well. And the mechanic repaired the car, we're told, Gustafson said, and he flew back to England, left the man continue on with his holiday. And as you can imagine, the fellow was wondering, well, how much is this going to cost? And so when he got back to England, he wrote the people a letter and asked how much he owed them. And he received a letter from the office that read, quote, Dear sir, there is no record anywhere in our files that anything has ever gone wrong with a Rolls Royce, unquote. That's what being declared righteous is all about. It's as if you hadn't sinned. Because justification is a legal term. It's a term in the courts, the cosmic court of the law. And so now here is Job wrestling with, and how can I be right before a righteous God? And one of his colleagues in that time period, he is God announcing to Abram that he has because of his belief, he has been declared righteous. And now the person who grasps that 
and understands we've been declared righteous in the cosmic court of the law says, but you know something? I've got some reasons for asking this question. There are four reasons that come jumping out at us. The first is found in verse 3. If one wished to contend with him, contend with God in other words, one could not answer him once in a thousand times. The first reason for asking that question is that we're dealing here with the incomparable God, the incomparability of God. If I was in the court and I was trying to make my case, I wouldn't be able to contend with him. He is all-knowing, he is all-wise, he is all-powerful, he is all-righteous. Where do I wouldn't stand a chance. There's the greatness of God. There's the littleness of the jobs of this world. Where do we go when we're dealing with somebody like this? But he's got a second reason, and it comes out of verse 4. Not only the incomparability of God in verse 3, but the wisdom of God in verse 4. He's wise in heart and mighty in strength. Who's hardened himself against him and succeeded? Wisdom. The Hebrew word for wisdom, chokmah, masterful understanding, skill, expertise. The book of Job is one of the five wisdom books of the Old Testament. And maybe this morning you are longing for uh, for a time in court with God where you can argue your case that I'm being targeted unfairly. This just doesn't seem to be right. I'm on a trajectory I was never meant to be on, and I'm experiencing things I was never meant to experience. But then, but then not only are you dealing with the incomparability of God, you're dealing with the wisdom of God. And as Herbert Kyer puts it in dark threads, my life is but a weaving between my Lord and me. I cannot choose the colors. He worketh steadily. Oft times the weaveth sorrow and I in foolish pride forget he sees the upper and I the underside. Not till the loom is silent and the shuttles cease to fly Shall God unroll the canvas and explain the reason why? The dark threads are as needful in the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern he has planned. And there we have it, you see, because God is incomparable in verse 3, and God is wise in verse 4. And you might be wondering this morning, well, why am I going through what I'm going through? And all I see here are dark threads. But we've got to bear in mind here that he sees the upper. And the jobs of this world only see the underside. And you're wondering, what's the pattern? And you're wondering, where is the wisdom? 
And you're wondering, how does all this fit in with the trajectory of my life? But he's not done yet. Because not only has Job in verse 3 addressed the whole matter of the incomparability of God, and in verse 4 he ponders the wisdom of God. In verses 5 and 6 he grasps the significance of the power of God, his third reason. He who removes mountains, and they know it not, he says. The God who removes mountains? What do you do with such power? And why doesn't he apply power to my case of human suffering, physical, relational, emotional, you name it? But then G.K. Chesterton says, the sun rises every morning. I do not rise every morning, but the variation is due not to my activity, but to my inaction. Now, to put it the matter in popular phrase, it might be that it's true the sun rises regularly because he never gets tired of rising. This routine might be due not to a lifelessness, but to a rush of life. The thing I mean... uh, can be seen, for instance, in children when they find some game or joke they especially enjoy. And then when they play the game, they are always saying, do it again. And then we look upwards and we long for God to part the seas of life and we say, do it again. And then I set down G.K. Chesterton's book and, I, and I'm thinking of Elevation. Your promise still stands. Great is your faithfulness. Faithfulness. I'm still in your hands. This is my confidence. You never failed me yet. I've seen you move. You move the mountains. And I believe I'll see you do it again. You made a way where there was no way. And I believe. I'll see you do it again. Your promise still stands. Great is your faithfulness. And there's Job now. And he's saying in verse 5, He who removes mountains. They know it not when he overturns them in his anger. He who shakes out of his place and its pillars tremble. So thus far, what he's offered in terms of reasons in response to the question being posed, but how can a man be in the right before God? He he gives you reason number one, the incomparability of God in verse 3. Reason number two, the wisdom of God in verse 4. Reason number three, the power of God, verses five and six. But a fourth reason, the authority of God, in verse seven through ten. Hugh Russell, an astronomer, would like this one, who's written a commentary in the book of Job, who commands the sun and it does not rise, who seals up the stars, who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea. And that time period, looking up into the galaxies, we find Job saying, who made the bear and the Orion, 
the Pleiades, the chambers of the south, who does great things beyond searching out and marvelous things beyond, beyond number. God speaks these things into existence. You need to make a strong connection between the book of Genesis and the book of Job because they both deal with the patriarchal time period, the early days of human history. And note the creation matters in the book of Job and the idea of design. And the designer who stands behind the design and his authority by simply speaking the word. And then ponder the centurion who Jesus engages conversationally in Matthew 8, where having entered Capernaum, the centurion comes forward, appealing to him, Lord, my servant's lying paralyzed at home. He's suffering terribly. And he said to him, I'll come and heal him. That's what Jesus said. Astoundingly, not a Jew, a Gentile replies, Lord, I am not, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. But only say the word and my servant will be healed. Say the word. Do you tie that story of Jesus back to the Genesis account where God spoke this world into existence? And that there's a designer who stands behind his... His design, as I hear the music of elevation, do it again, do it again. But you're thrust back into that cosmic courtroom. And the evil one is peering forward. Or maybe, maybe Job will now curse God. Ah, but if you were processing Nicholson's words, you can't handle the truth. But then you are beginning to ponder the significance of how a singular sentence can be a turning point in the cosmic courtroom experience of human suffering as it relates to the realities of this world. I don't think Anthony Flew got it. Philosophy, you know. Ossie Sproul engages him in one of his volumes. Flew composed a now famous parable to illustrate man's modern dilemma. About speaking of God, he told the story of two explorers who penetrated a remote area of African jungle. And far from civilization, they stumbled upon a clearing that contained a marvelous garden with perfectly symmetrical rows of plants. No weeds were growing. The garden appeared fully cultivated. Certain that there must be a gardener nearby, the explorers set up camp and waited for him to appear. <laughs> the gardener never came. The first explorer suggested that they just simply move along. But the second explorer argued, suggesting that perhaps the gardener was invisible. Maybe the gardener was slipping into the garden during the night. So the explorers set up a wire fence around the garden hung bells from it that would ring in the event that the invisible gardener came to tend the garden. And during that night and subsequent nights, the bells never rang. The first explorer now insisted that they just simply move on. The second explorer still wanted to stay and wait for the gardener, and he said to his friend, maybe the gardener is not only invisible but immaterial as well. And to this the first explorer replied, 
What's the difference between an invisible, immaterial gardener and no gardener at all? Flew arguing now against the evidence of Christianity, then stated that modern man has experienced the death of God in his language. God has died the death of a thousand qualifications. Scientific tests cannot be done on God. But what is the difference, we're asking, between an invisible and an immaterial God and no God at all? You and I, who are steeped in the scriptures, would argue there is a difference, and it's screaming at us. The difference is the garden. The presence of an intelligently cultivated and maintained garden is something we would not be able to find without a gardener. In other words, there's a designer behind the design. And maybe you're looking at the design of your life right now and you're saying, I'd like to have a little word with the gardener. This is Job's issue. And so what he does now, and he becomes very emphatic, and he uses visual verbiage at this point with two beholds. You grasp them in verse 11 and again in verse 12. The first behold in 11, behold, he passes by me and I, I see him not. Immortal, invisible, God only wise. He moves on, but I do not perceive him. And then a second behold, verse 12, another visual verbal usage. Behold, he snatches away. Who can turn him back? Who will say to him, here you have it. What are you doing? Which might be the question of people in an ICU. The question in the emergency room. St. Patrick's Day, you know. And there's this great hymn that comes out of Ireland that pulls together these 12 verses in Job 9. I rise today in the power's strength, invoking the Trinity, believing in freeness, confessing the oneness of creation's creator. Fantastic. It ends, for to the Lord belongs salvation. And to the Lord belongs salvation, and to Christ belongs salvation. May your salvation, Lord, be with us always. And what they're saying is that this, this design has a designer, you know. And we know that that designer sent his perfectly designed one into Bethlehem to die on Calvary. But we're getting a little ahead of ourselves, aren't we? But thus far, what you've said is that out of verses 1 through 12, as we explore the judicial aspects of human suffering, we've made our first connection. It's the connection between God and creation. You've pondered the question, but how can a man be in the right before God? Same question Luther posed in 1517. But Job offers Luther and the others of this world who suffer four significant reasons to be able to answer that ending with two beholds. 
But now here comes your way, here comes my way, a second connection. As we continue week by week to develop a greater and greater understanding of the relationship of God's suffering. Here, second of all, I want you to see the connection between God and mediation. I said God and creation in 1 through 12. Now we're going to talk about God and mediation in verse, in verse 25 through 35. Jump down there with me, will you, for sake of time. So now, here's what he does. I can almost see him taking a deep breath at the mar- looking at the marathon of life for you marathoners. My days are swifter than a runner. They flee away. They see no good. What's he talking about? He's talking about the brevity of life. And we've encountered many funerals over the course of these months. Loved ones, including Orville's funeral this Saturday. Love him. And we're struck with what Billy Graham described when he was asked the question, what surprises you most about life? And he said, it's the brevity of life. He's not with this Nathan. And Job now is grappling with this whole issue, so he uses further imagery this time of the runner and adds in verse in this next verse of 26, they go like, like skiffs of reed, like an eagle swooping on the prey. But the courtroom's not too far away from him. He thinks he's on trial. But as we've said, it's God, not Job, who's on trial. That in the midst of Job's trials... It is God who is on trial. And Job is offering testimony to the cosmic realm that his is not a commercial faith. He's not on the take. Take the blessings away and you can might as well take the faith away. No, if you take the blessings away, I'll still believe. I'll still believe, will you? Are you? If some of the blessings have been removed and you're hurting this morning, He takes a deep breath. I can see it coming our way in 27. If I say I'll forget my complaint, he's still in that cosmic courtroom. I'll put on my sad face, put off my sad face, be of good cheer. I'm going to play the role of the stoic. But you see, he gets the connection between creation and mediation and how this relates to suffering. Because in 28, I, I become afraid. I could become afraid of all my suffering. For I know you will not hold me innocent. Yeah, the opening verses we are told that he's blameless. Never said he was sinless, just says he's blameless. He's not he's not the cause of his suffering. But then he goes on in twenty nine, I shall be condemned. Why then do I labor in vain if I wash myself with snow and cleanse my hands with lye? Yet you will plunge me into a pit and my, my own clothes will abhor me. And he's wrestling at this point, isn't he, with this whole matter of just where he stands before God and how then do I handle this whole matter of guilt? 
And then I think again of a former professor of mine, H. Norman Wright, who has written brilliantly on the whole subject of, of the whole matter of grieving and has a chapter devoted to grieving and guilt. And for some people, they deal with guilt in the midst of grief. Guilt and shame walk their way into the grief process. There are numerous sources for the guilt. The most immediate guilt comes from taking some responsibility for the loss of that person, the suffering of that person. Perhaps the guilt is connected to a discussion that you feel contributed in some way to the loss or maybe a decision that was made. But then paragraphs later, he adds, be aware of survivor guilt. The feeling, feeling guilty because you are still alive while your loved one is gone. Dr. Wright ends the paragraph with these words. When the pangs of guilt hit, evict them. You don't need them as a tenant in your life. A wise. A wise. Because guilt and innocence are now issues that Job is wrestling with this. He's trying to defend himself in front of these, these supposed counselors who are trying to defend God. And at the end of the book of Job, Job's going to have to defend his counselors before God. Isn't that ironic? That's why the cosmic courtroom seems to, from chapter 1 to the last chapter, envelop the whole matter of human suffering relationship to God, but onward. Because now you're up to that line, verses 32 and 33. For he's not a man, speaking, Job is not, he's speaking of God at this point. He's not a man that I am, that I might answer him. That we should come together to trial together. You see that? So now you got the cosmic courtroom scene right here. That classic line you're looking for, that that movie historian is searching for. The movie historian says, as an example from a few good men, you can't handle the truth. Well, here's the classic line coming your way from Job now in the courtroom. You can almost feel the sigh, hear it. There's no arbiter, no umpire. There's no... There's no lawyer here. Somebody to represent me. I need it. Maybe you feel like you need that this morning. There's no arbiter here between us who might lay his hand on us both. You see... This is a call for someone who's got the authority and the ability to represent his client. It's going to require somebody who can lay his hand simultaneously upon the sinless one as well as the sinful one. Who can do that? Who can be your arbiter? Hmm. You ever served on a jury? Somewhere in my opening decade here, I got the summons. And so I uh, 
I obeyed and went to the courtroom here in Sheboygan County. And there were a lot of people there that were being considered for the jury. And they took, they all took seats in the initial jury box. And the lawyers took turns interviewing each of us. And then a question was posed, is there anybody here sitting among you who could influence your decision? I'm sitting in the front row, and I, all of a sudden, evidently, somebody raised their hand and said, I, I was at an Easter service at the Stephanie Weil Center, and I heard Dr. Highlander speak, and the lawyer said, you're excused. Three more hands went up with the same thing. I raised my hand said, why don't you bring them back and I can leave. I know the judge and the judge knows me. We can get along. We can get away with that. Went into the jury room because I've been selected. You got to hand over, you know, your phones. That's a hard thing for me to do. I carry it even at this moment. But I set it on a table, and um, while there, I got my coffee. I like it black, please. And while there, uh, the judge winks at me, which is never a good sign. Because I walked back in and found out I was cheering the jury. Uh, they had already voted. So I took my place, and I said, okay, if you want me to be your foreman, if I'm going to chair, we're going to do at least three rounds here. First round. We're going to go around this table, and I want each of you in about two minutes to give us a little biographical sketch of your life. Tell us about yourself. What I was looking for are any biases. I want to see where leanings are. We went around the table. Then, second round, I said, now I would like each of you, having heard the lawyers and the presentation of the evidence, and give your initial inclination of how you're leaning, guilt or innocence. Think Job at this point. First person says innocent. Second person says innocent. Third person says innocent. Goes all the way around the table until I get to this guy about 20 years older than me. He's got his arms folded, which is never a good sign. He's not one who's going to wink at me. And he says, guilty. And you could hear the oxygen being sucked out of the room. I said, now, I'd like you to explain to the rest of everybody here why you believe that he is guilty. And he explained. And I sensed the biases. I said, now, we're going to go another round around this table, starting with the person on my left. We'll go around, and I want you to present to this gentleman why you believe that the one we're considering is innocent. First person went, second person, on and on around went. Finally got to this one. I said, have you changed your mind? He said, no, guilty. I said, present. He presented again based upon what he'd heard. I said, time out. We're taking a 10-minute break. I pulled the guy off to the side and gave him a more than a, a gentle squeeze on the shoulder, stared him in the eyes, and I said, you know, you're the only one standing now. So you better present your case and present it well because the day is getting on. And uh, he had his arms folded. He was, he was in a, he, I knew his biases and his prejudices. They were becoming clear. All of a sudden I hear his stomach growl. 
I said, you're hungry, aren't you? Hmm, he said. Sat down next to me, and I'm pondering, Lord, where are we going to go from here? And then I, his stomach growls loud enough that others can hear it as well. And I said, the dinner hour is approaching, isn't it? They're nodding their heads, and they're looking at this guy, and they're not happy with him. And I turned to him, and I said, what are you thinking? And he looked at me. We went around again. He was becoming a problem. He was arguing against the people. We went around again. Finally, we got to him, and he pounds the table, and he says, he's innocent. And I said, what made you change your mind? He said, it's dinner time. And we all got up and informed the judge of our decision. There is due process for you, I want you to know. And I got a jury to this very day, 10 plus years later, still talking about this thing in Sheboygan County. But what struck me was that that one who had biases against him, the evidence stood up in the court of law and he was declared, he was declared innocent. You get to the end of the book of Job and you will find in the cosmic court of the law that though he is not sinless, he is innocent in the fact that he is not the cause of his suffering. There are other reasons for suffering. And in his case, it was testimonial. He was testifying to the cosmos. Mine is not a commercial faith. You can remove the blessings, but I'll still believe. How about you? But back to that line. See, in the movie, historians taken up with that fact that in the great courtroom scenes in movie history, there's that particular line, that single line, that will stick out in your mind for the rest of your life. And there's Job's. It's in 33. There's no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both. It's going to take someone who can lay one hand on the sinless one and the other on the sinful one, God and humanity simultaneously. Where do you turn? The Apostle Paul has got the answer. Check out what appears on the screen. The Apostle Paul has an answer to Job's cosmic question. There is one God and there is one mediator between God and men. The man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all which is the testimony given at the proper time Job's is a testimonial faith, that his is not a commercial faith, but a biblical faith. And so when a movie historian says, consider the line, you can't handle the truth. For those who know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you know the truth. There is one mediator between God and men the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, 
which is the testimony given at the proper time. That's your testimony in the midst of your suffering. There's your line, your words, when people are listening in and wondering, how do I make sense when life doesn't seem fair? Let's stand together. As week by week, we continue to build a structure to help us as a congregation better understand how the sinless one will relate to the sinful ones and how the God of the universe works with suffering while at the same time having sent his son into the world to suffer and then die on our behalf. Take us to that one singular mediator, Jesus. And allow for us to understand the scope and the significance of all this. You move the mountains. Do it again, God. Do it again. We pray these things now in Jesus' name.